That is the Word of God. Uh, the title of my message today is God is on the Throne. Uh, I think that is the comment that I have heard from more preachers and pastors in this past year than I'd ever heard it before in this presidential campaign. They said, no matter, and I've said, no matter what happens, we're fine, for the Lord is still on the throne. And every time we said something like that, some people applauded and a few said amen. We kind of had a weak part of that today even. But you know that, that powerful phrase, God is on the throne, communicates that no matter what might happen in our world, no matter who might become the leader of any nation anywhere at any time, the God who loves us, whom we know as our Father, the one who made everything, is sovereign. That means He is in control over everything that He has made. God is God, and God is on the throne. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. That's a little better. All right. Now, this morning, on the second Advent weekend of 2016, what I want to do is to take that phrase, God is on the throne, and think about if we really believe that, what should change in you and me practically and personally? Because it does make a difference, I think, in any setting in our world, who is in charge of that place. I mean, whether that would be our families or our church or our business or our nation, uh, anything. I, you know that's true, right? If you have a person in control who knows what he or she is doing, then everything changes. I've thought of a thousand illustrations, but I decided just to take you back to my childhood. Here's my family home back in Bluefield, West Virginia. Uh, Southern Californians, uh, when my parents got to be older, uh, we tore down the family house and sold it. Yeah, guess what we sold it for? $48,000. And we were lucky to get that. Anyway, in my family home, my mom, who was about five feet tall, was on the throne of the kitchen. I am telling you, she was in charge. And especially when we would have these big family meals at Thanksgiving or at Christmas, sometimes I as a boy would go and I'd see the mess that was there in the kitchen as she got ready, and she would look at me with that look. You know what, I, wanna, I know what I'm doing, don't you, son? And uh, over the years, I came to know that she did. I knew that whatever was happening at that moment, whatever mess was there at that moment, that it was going to be a fabulous meal. I knew that the family table would be beautiful. And I even knew at the end of this thing, when she was done, that kitchen would no longer be a mess. It would be an order because my mom was in charge and she knew what she was doing. Uh, and what was true of my mom, I want you to know, is infinitely, infinitely more true of the God who declares to us, I am on the throne of this universe. I can be trusted. And that should change, I believe, every moment and every day and every decision of our lives. And I want us to think about what that change should look like. And, and to guide us, I want us to turn to Isaiah chapter 6, the text that Ruby read so powerfully for us. Um, but let me tell you, Isaiah, this entire uh, Advent season, we're going to be looking at some of his prophetic 
um, messages, writing seven to eight hundred years before Jesus was born. He gave these beautiful messages. He will be born of a virgin. It will be light coming into this world. It will be like a shoot coming out of a stump. So all of those prophetic messages, most of them happen between chapters 7 and 12. We're going to be looking at them all have been seasoned. But I want you to know this. I'm starting here in chapter 6 because none of those things could ever happen if Isaiah 6 were not true. This is where it all started. It was the day that a, a young man, maybe 18, maybe 20 years old, went into the house of God. So here's what I want you to see first. What was going on when this young man named Isaiah, uh, uh, what was going on in his life when he saw the one who was in control on the throne? And he says it in verse 1 so concisely. It was in the year that King Uzziah died. So what I, young Isaiah is wanting to say here is what I'm going to tell you about really happened. It happened in history. It happened in a real time. It was the year that King Uzziah died, um, and that was 748 B.C., I think, or seven, no, I, I, 739 B.C. Anybody around back, back then? It's almost, almost three millennia ago. That was the date that was life-changing for him, and you can read about it in, in his first five chapters of the book of Isaiah. Because for about five decades, things have been going well for the small nation that Isaiah was a part of. It was the nation of Judah. Just two tribes of God's people, the people of Israel, were in that particular nation. They had had uh, an effective king. They had had great material success. Stock market was doing well. They had had great military success. And in all those years, instead of them thanking God, they had become smug. They become proud. Their lives had just become self-seeking and pleasure-seeking. Oh, they, they felt like they were just fine because they still had the temple there in the great city of Jerusalem, and they showed up sometimes for the worship service. They would say, well, we're fine before God, but they weren't living for God. Their lives, they were doing everything that every other nation was doing. And yet, instead of being repentant at all when they would come in, they would say, well, there's nothing wrong with us. We're better than other people. <laughs> at least we show up at the worship service, don't we? But things were not right with them. And by the time that Isaiah, this day in Isaiah 6, went into the temple, things were beginning to fall apart for the people of Judah. Uh, their material success was disintegrating. Stock market was going down. Uh, their marriages and families were disintegrating. They, uh, and after years of feeling secure, you know, because they had this, this good king, uh, after years of feeling secure, a new dictator had come onto a superpower's throne. His name was Tiglath-Pileser. Um, I have a picture of him because an archaeological dig was done a, a number of years ago in which you have this plate of, of what he, they say he looked like. I want you to know this really happened in history. This dictator had, had his designs on expanding his kingdom. Uh, he was sort of the Vladimir Putin of the uh, 8th century B.C. That's, well, that's what you have to think of. And that expansion was going to lead directly through Judah and its capital city of Jerusalem. Now, instead of being terrorized, uh, young Isaiah and the people of Jerusalem still felt like maybe things will be okay because they had in charge an effective king. His name is King Uzziah. Uh, we, I don't have a, 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 an archaeological plate of him, but uh, Rembrandt did a picture of him, so I'll let you see that. I, I doubt he looked at all like that, but you can think about it. 
Um, generally speaking, Uzziah was a, a good king, reigning for 52 years. He had been a great commander-in-chief, very good military leader. He'd been a very good administrator. He'd been a man more true to God than most of the kings of Judah or of Israel. And again, in any family, institution, a church or, or nation, if, if the leader is in charge, is good and effective, we often think things are going to be just fine. We still have hope. I think that day, even though things were starting to fall apart for the people of Israel, Isaiah, young Isaiah's hope was in the fact that he had a good king who would rescue things. And does that help you to see the significance of this first verse? It shouts out at us. It happened in the year. The king, Uzziah, died. He would no longer be on the throne. But someone was on the throne. Which brings me to the second thing I want you to see. Who is the king who was and is and still is on the throne and always will be? And this is what Isaiah said. I saw the Lord seated on the throne. Um, so on this day when everything was beginning to unravel in his, in his uh, uh, country this young man went into the worship service early one day you can picture that happening you can try to think of what you would feel like if a teenager or a college student would come into this place before you got there I think Isaiah as he walked in he might have expected to see the throne there because coronations usually happened in the temple so I'm sure he thought that, that the throne would be there, and it was. But the thing that surprised him was someone was already seated on the throne before the coronation ever took place. And it wasn't a human king. What, what he began to see is he did not see the next king of Judah. He saw the king of glory seated on the throne. And then he went out. And I want you to picture yourself being there as this 20-year-old guy goes walking out and he says, I've got to tell you what I saw back there when I went into the worship center. This is what I saw. I saw the Lord high and exalted and seated on that throne. And he was so huge that just the hem of his robe absolutely filled the entire temple. It's not just that. I saw these fiery angelic-like beings around him, praising him. Uh, if you're here, you might want to try to draw what they looked like with two wings. They had six wings, two wings. They covered their eyes. They couldn't even look on him. With two wings, they covered their feet. With two wings, they were flying. Try to draw it if you can imagine doing that. I found one artist's renditions of this. Look at that. Can you imagine if you walked in and you saw that happening? That's what I saw, Isaiah said. And it's not just what I saw, it's what I heard. These fiery angels were singing back and forth antiphonally to one another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. It's not just this temple that's filled with his glory. The whole earth is filled with his glory. Amen. It must have been so loud that it was thunderous because Isaiah writes that the foundations of the temple shook. And he says, smoke is rising. And if I'm right in thinking that that smoke was probably the smoke of incense in worship to God, then you can see that all these senses were going for Isaiah. What he saw, what he heard, what he smelled were all declaring the glory and holiness of the God who was on the throne. 
what would you think if you were just about to come into church and you had one of our college students says, wait before you go in, this is what I saw. Would you believe him? Let me say this to us here today. I believe that you and I and all Christians need to live every day of our lives in light of the fact that this kind of God is God and that he is still in control of everything in this world. And he has authority and control over every issue that you face in your life and in this world. He is greater than anything you face. I'm just telling you, I fear for the church here in the United States because I think we have done some things to our worship that the people of Judah were doing back in Isaiah's day. We've made it safe. Hope it's going to be entertaining. We hope it's going to be comfortable for people to come in. We hope people will just feel good when they go out. And that's not a bad thing to do. To feel, I, I'm not putting that down. But I'm just telling you, when Isaiah saw the Lord face to face, I don't think it was all that comfortable. Do you? He had to change his life. Let me ask you, do you think that the God that you have come to worship today is the same God that Isaiah saw that day? Uh, do you believe that he is still on the throne of everything in his universe? Yes. And mostly I want to ask you, is he really, really on the throne of your life? Have you surrendered your whole life to him? The genuine follower of Jesus is always the person who has seen that all those things that are authorities and powers in our world that often we're afraid of are nothing compared to the God that we call our Father and that we have this opportunity to enter boldly into his presence. We are people who have met him through faith in Jesus and have surrendered our lives to him, right? And that means there is nothing in this world to be afraid. We are to live every day of our lives trusting him. God is on the throne. So I, I was thinking about this, and what I immediately thought of is that older movie, Chariots of Fire, it won an Academy Award. Churchgoers, most of us have watched it. I, I know that's true. It's that beautiful story of Eric Liddell, uh, the Scottish believer. He became a missionary in China who was also a fast runner, and he was in the Olympic Games, and he wasn't going to run on Sunday because it went against his conscience. He, he believed that God wouldn't have him do that. And all the powers that were in the UK were trying to get him to run. And so they came together. And this, this um, one, Lord Cadogan, turned to him and, and said, um, in my day, it was kings first and God afterward. <laughs> to which Liddell said, God made countries. God makes kings and the rules by which they govern. And those rules say that the Sabbath is his. And when God says it, I, for one, intend to keep it that way. It's just what happens when we meet God and we see him as Isaiah saw him and surrender our lives to him. You just got to think about what happened to Isaiah that day. He went in to the house of God, anxious, because the one in whom he'd placed his hope, good King Uzziah, had died. He left his time of worship that day confident because he knew that the real king was alive eternally. Amen. And I have become so convinced 
that when you and I actually worship God and meet Him and live in the light of Him, it changes every moment of our lives. Do you see that that's true? You go out into the day and you face things you would never have have wanted to face, and yet you know it's not outside of God's control, right? And now, no matter how hard it is, it's not bigger than God is. Because the Bible declares that no matter what happens in your life, in this church, in this nation, or in this world, God is on the throne. And once that happened to Isaiah, I think it was sort of inscribed in his memory, burnt its way into his memory, and changed every moment of his life. Which is the next thing I want us to think about. How does actually meeting and knowing the God who is on the throne change us? Now, those of you who have been here my whole 10 years, you know, I think, doesn't every sermon I preach kind of have what difference knowing God should make in our lives? It changes everything, doesn't it? So when I ask this question, what should it change? I, I can't preach about everything. We'd be here all day. So here's what I've decided to do. I've decided to look at how it began to change Isaiah's life. There, there are some basic beginnings, and I think that those become the most important things for you and me. So I'm going to point them out to you, and I want you to think your, of your own life in the light of what happened to Isaiah. So, so what should change you? Number one, when you actually worship God, when you actually meet God, what's, what's going to happen is you're going to have to get your personal life right with God. Did you see that happened to Isaiah, didn't it? Look at verse 7. Things were wrong, and then something happened so that God's messenger said, Isaiah, it's different now. Your guilt is taken away. Your sin is atoned for. So um, while he was in the presence of this powerful, holy God, he had to take a look at himself. And as he looked inside of his own life, what he saw wasn't all that pretty. And being a good Jewish boy that he was, he knew, and, and what I think is right for everyone, that evil is something that has to be punished. There can be no justice anywhere in this world if we just let evil go on. He knew that, that there was a punishment that had to go for evil. Somebody had to pay for that. And he knew he'd done it. And he admits it. He confesses it. Oh, my, my, my lips are unclean, he would say. So as he looked at himself, he turns and he says, Woe is me. I am ruined. I, I'm a man of unclean lips. And my eyes now have seen the Holy Lord Almighty, the King. You, you can imagine, Isaiah was saying, I've had it now. I shouldn't have shown up in church today. That, that, that's why. Because I know myself, and God is actually here. Eventually, he will say, I live among a people of unclean lips because he did. But one of the most important things for me is he started with himself. That's so different from the way sometimes we do this as churchgoers, isn't it? How many times when a sermon, when God's word is open, do you think, boy, I wish my spouse were here today. She needs to hear this thing. <laughs> wish my son was here. He needs to hear this. I wish my parents were here. I wish these politicians were here today. They, they need to know God. And, and all of that is true, isn't it? But I, I want you to know that where the real change happens in our lives it, it begins to happen not when we punt God's message to others first. It starts when we let him deal with us. And Isaiah came in and he knew that his lips, even though he was a prophet, a preacher, 
the very thing that God used, they were unclean. Have you thought about that? And he knew that had to be made right. And I'll tell you, Isaiah was not the last person who went into a worship service one day with his life out of order with God. And the first thing that had to happen to him is he had to get his life right with God. So just picture being there. He had already said, woe is me, I'm unclean. God is going to wipe me out because he's holy and he's going to punish evil. And then he saw one of those fiery angels flying toward the altar of God, taking one of those fiery coals so hot that even the fiery angels had to use a tong to pick it up. And then that, that seraph came flying closer to him, closer and closer to him. You know what Isaiah thought was going to happen, don't you? And then it did happen. He took that fiery coal and he touched Isaiah's lips. But Isaiah was not destroyed. Here is testimony. One of the seraphs flew to me with a live coal in his hand. With it, he touched my lips and said, See, this which has come from God himself has touched your lips. Isaiah, your guilt is taken away. Your sin is atoned for. Have you ever experienced it? As you come here today, that is the offer that God makes to all people. When you turn to him, and if you look back over this week and say some of these thoughts, some of these words, some of these actions, Lord, they don't please you, and you turn them to him and confess them, you can hear him say to you, your guilt, I'm going to take his way as far as east is from the west. Your sin has been atoned for. The thing I, I want you to see about this is when God breaks into our lives and shows us things from his word, which I pray happens when you come to church, God's word doesn't do that to shame you or to make you feel guilty. It, it's to bring you to a place where you can find cleansing for that. Do you see it? God loves you. He wants to remake you. He wants to start again with you. So I believe that every time this word is open, we'll see something about ourselves that needs to be more like Jesus than it is right now. And then we have to make a decision. Will we say yes to him or no? And I've written this down. I want you to think about this. I think it's dangerous to come to church and hear a sermon because every time you actually hear God's call upon you, you're going to come away either a step closer to God or a step further away from him. Either you receive it and your heart will be softer toward him or it will be harder, but you will never be the same. So today, if God is showing you something in your life that, like Isaiah, you need to confess, will you bring that to him in prayer right now? Ask him to cleanse you. Ask him to start again with you. I, I, you need to think about this too. The angel in that second phrase said, Isaiah, your sin has been atoned for. That, that phrase in, in his language meant it's been paid for. So the question is, who paid? <laughs> uh, who paid? Isaiah didn't know. Um, he, he would begin knowing more as he went on with his life. Starting in chapter 7, he would have these prophecies of someone who was going to come, who was going to pay for it, 
uh, uh, through a virgin he's going to be born, Isaiah 7. It's going to be light breaking into the darkness of your life, Isaiah 9. It's going to be like a shoot coming out of a dead stump. New life's going to come into you, Isaiah 11. Finally, by Isaiah 53, this one who's going to come that I'm prophesying about is going to be the one who by his stripes is going to be provide healing for us. But I tell you, at this moment, Isaiah didn't know how this pay is going to take place. But he did know this, that after he had seen the power and the holiness of this God, and he knew something about the grace and mercy of this God, if this God says, I will take away your guilt and I will pay for your sins, he would be able to do it. It's kind of like me staring at my mom and saying, this looks pretty messy in here. And she says, don't you know I know what I'm doing? God had to turn to him and say, Isaiah, you have to trust me. I know what I'm doing. I love you, and I'm going to remake you. So here now we come, and we know how the payment for our sins has come. It's more than anything Isaiah could have ever envisioned. God himself, through his son Jesus, came into this world. He lived a sinless life. He was willing to die in my place and in yours on the cross. And through what he has done, he, asks, he brings forgiveness and the opportunity for a new life. I'll tell you, anytime this hits you, you're going to be like Isaiah. You're going to know you just have to get your life right with God. And I pray that if God is speaking to you today, yeah, you'll just give everything to him. So I better move along. So uh, you've got to get your life right with God. Number two, it kind of gives you this new first desire. When you actually meet God as he is, Going to church isn't just sort of punching the clock. It kind of changes everything you hope for. I call it a first desire because we keep other desires, don't we? I mean, I still like to eat. <laughs> there's so many things I desire, but there's a first desire, one that is over all of them, and that is to please God. And, and so when, when God spoke to Isaiah, his, 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 verse 8, so here I am, I, Lord, whatever you want, I'll do it, send me. I've tried to imagine the, the first emotional response Isaiah had when that angel, instead of wiping him out, said, your sins are gone. Do you think it was relief? Surprise? I, honest, I honestly think it's gratitude. I mean, wild gratitude. <laughs> wild gratitude. Because it's when, the, when we're really grateful for who God is and what he's done or that anybody's done for you, you're just willing to respond immediately and do anything they ask you to do. And that's what Isaiah does. It's those who just know we have fallen short and then we hear God saying, but I love you with an everlasting love. I've dealt with that we're willing to say anything so that when God says, I have something for you to do, he's willing to do it immediately. I, I jotted this down. He didn't ask God precisely. Now, what is the assignment? I want to evaluate whether I have the gifts for it. He, he didn't say, what's the salary going to be, God? I want to find out if I can live on it. He didn't ask what the retirement plan was or even the health care benefits under the new Judah Affordable Care Act, which they were calling Uzziah Care. He didn't say any of that. He only says, God, if you ask me, I'm ready. I will do it. Send me. All right. How grateful are you for what Jesus did for you on the cross? Have you heard these sermons so often that you just suddenly, you become sort of hardened to it? 
I, I pray somehow God will break through all of our hearts, draw us to a new and deeper gratitude so that we will say like Isaiah did, whatever you want me to do, God, that's where I want to be. I will go, send me. I was thinking about this in my own walk with God. I have to tell you, it's been over the years where I've come to a point where I've simply been willing to go and do whatever God wanted me, where he wanted me to go and what he wanted me to do, that my own walk with God has become deeper and more real, that it, it changed from being just, you know, ritualistic church going. Do you know what I'm talking about here? It's sometimes what God asks us to do, and what he asked Isaiah to do was really hard. And he went and did it. He, Isaiah was a preacher, and you can read it through. He was, the first message he was going to have to do is he was going to have to go out and tell people, you've walked away from God for so long that now judgment has to come. And he was told, Isaiah, when you preach it, nobody's going to believe you. That's not a fun thing for a preacher. How would you like it if God said, no, I'm going to send you to Lake Avenue Church. And, and there are already thousands of people there. But after you've been there a few weeks, you're only going to be two or three. That will be your wife and maybe your dog who's showing up because they're just not going to believe anything that you say. You wouldn't want to do that, would you? But I'll tell you, every time that I've sensed that there was something God wanted me to do and I've just said, I'll do it, send me, I found him... To, to be there and to be, my walk with him has become more real. I'm trying to find the words to tell you about this. Even this past year, I have thought about this, us as a church. We rejoice in the breadth and diversity of our church and in the political opinions that we have in our church. There's such a, a breadth of these. But as I looked at this year, I thought, Lord, how on earth do we walk together without just ignoring it and, and not even talking about what's happening in our world uh, so, so maybe, uh, so that it seems like the Bible's irrelevant, how do we actually talk ab about the issues when, when we are all over the map in many of our convictions, knowing, as I've talked to you about so often, that one of the reasons that God has put us here as a church is so that in the midst of a broken world, we can say, yes, God has brought us together in Christ. When our eyes are upon this one who is in charge, we can actually enter into a relationship across those divides, and they're not going to divide us. What God has brought together, let no one and nothing put asunder. God has brought us together. But I'll tell you, I thought about this as your senior pastor, and I thought, I don't have the ability to lead a church. You brought this hillbilly West Virginian into sophisticated Southern California to try to walk together with us through that. But I'll just tell you, in those times, there are just these times where you just know there's something God would have you to do, and you begin, right? Amen. And it's in those moments that you will find that God is sufficient for anything. And I know that that's what Isaiah found. You read the rest of his life in his book, and you will find he did almost impossible things he would go before kings who seemed to have the power of life over death over him and he would take God's message. Where did he find the confidence and strength to do it? He found it that day when he walked into the house of God and saw God as he is and he knew where the real power lay, didn't he? He knew that God was on the throne. And I'll tell you what happens when you meet him and know him is that first you just got to get your life right with him and you see he has made a way for that to happen. And then you have to have different desires. Your main desire is simply to be where he would have you to be and do what he'd have you to do. 
And, and with our time gone, let me just mention briefly, the last thing that happens that changes you when you meet God this way that we see in Isaiah is that you always have hope. No matter how bad things are, you always have hope. So Isaiah was going to go and preach this message. And, and the people, his people were often called a vineyard or a forest in the Old Testament. And this judgment was going to come from God that he had to tell them about that was going to leave them as if there was nothing there. It looked dead. Only a stump was there. And this is what he wrote. Verse 13. As the terebinth, which is the olive tree, and the oak leaves stumps when they're cut down. Sometimes it's going to look like you're dead. So the holy seed will be the stump in the land. It's a powerful illustration. I'll try to show you. There's a picture I found that I thought kind of looks like, you know, everything being dead, even that stump. Can any kind of life ever come out of that sort of thing? It looked hopeless, the judgment that would come. I found a second picture. I thought it was so powerful to think of this, how life can be there when you and I would never have seen that life being there. It really is a message to us, isn't it? That sometimes when you feel like there's no future for you, you failed, this thing isn't going to work, God says, no, 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 I've never given up on you. There is still, if, if I am in you, there is still life within you, so the holy seed will be in that stump. With this beautiful poetry, he wants to tell you uh, that when God is in this matter and you turn back to him, he will always receive you. He is always there and is able to do what he says, to forgive, rescue, and use you again. I think I better stop there for now. We have more sermons coming. We're going to be looking at these great, they've been so moving for me. You can tell already these Isaiah prophecies. We have more coming, so I'll stop there for now. But I want to leave you with this word of encouragement. I don't know all that's happening in your life right now. There's just no way I could. And, and sometimes we come to church, we just, you listen to me. I, I don't know if there might be problems with a marriage if you're married, a problem with your family, problem with some relationships, or with money or with school, I don't know. But I know this, and I declare to you this. God loves you with an everlasting love that he will never take away. This God, who is so powerful, loves you with an everlasting love and he is greater than anything you are facing. Even if a part of this problem, just like it was with Isaiah, is you, that you know you've walked away from God, God still hasn't given up on you. Do you see? He has found a way. He's made a provision so that he, he can declare, he can actually deal with the guilt that is there and take it away and pay for the sin that is there and set you free, say you're right with him and use you again. You've got to hold on to that. I, I want you now to return to him and to know that the God that you return to is ready with open arms and ready to start with you again today. I want you to know that no matter how hard the going may seem when your trust is in this kind of God. You always know there is hope for it's in him 
And, and that God in whom you place your hope is the same one that Isaiah met in Isaiah 6. And I tell you, he is still on the throne. And it is to his glory. Amen. Um, I was wondering how we could really bring this home. Uh, I've always been a big fan of, of Stephen Curtis Chapman's music. For much of my life, it's just ministered to me. So I'm on his email list. So this past week, um, I got an email, and he attached a new song that he had, he had just written. And obviously, he had heard in his church the same thing I told you about, the preacher always saying, God is on the throne. So he decided he'd sit down and write a song about it. And I asked Jeremy, I sent it over to Jeremy. It's really hard to play and sing. But, but I told him, you need to just say, here am I, send me, uh, I'll sing this thing. And uh, he's going to come up and, and play it, I think, unless he ran off. Where, oh, there you are, Jeremy. I was, a, I was just, okay, you know what I was saying. Um, I'll read you as Jeremy is coming what uh, Stephen Curtis Chapman put in the email. I liked it. He said, trusting that God is on the throne is really the only thing that can keep us sane in the craziness of this life. It doesn't mean we are to be passive and do nothing. In an election year, we need to vote and do our part as responsible citizens of this great, albeit broken and imperfect nation. And we need to pray a lot. But ultimately, I really believe that if we can remember that God is the one who removes kings and sets up kings and that he's not up there biting his nails over the outcome of everything, we will actually be a whole lot more at peace, more effective, and more relevant in our witness to this world and to this nation. And to say the obvious, we will be a whole lot less freaked out. Four, God is on the throne.